Our reading today, our scripture text is from Luke chapter 8, misprint on your um, handout. Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. If you will follow along with me, please. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. And when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged him repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man for whom the demons had gone, from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid." Those who had been seen, sorry, those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and he left. And the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town, how much Jesus had done for him. May God bless the reading of his word. We stand as we sing this next song. I remember very clearly the first time that I flew internationally all by myself. I was 23 years old. You would have thought by then I would have kind of had it sorted together. But uh, much like today, you know, about, about the offering time, I start getting pretty nervous and my stomach starts kind of floating down to the bottom and about getting up here, and I know y'all are not going to jump up and uh, uh, chew me out or anything like that, but it is a little scary all the time to, uh, to get up and, and to deliver God's Word. But I know that God is with me, I know the Spirit is with me, and, and um, He's going to speak through me. But I was going to a place that I had never been before. I was going to Costa Rica. I was going to go work as a missionary apprentice under a missionary that I had never met before. His name was Ray Bynum. And I was going to go work with another missionary apprentice who I barely knew, who had been there about six weeks uh, before I got down there. So I take off. I fly out of Austin, and I'm headed to DFW. And when I land, I get off the plane. I come out the gate, and I immediately find, okay, which gate do I need to go to to catch my plane to go to Miami? And I ran over to that gate. I probably had about an hour, hour and a half layover. But I sat right by that gate and I didn't move until it was time to board that flight. Uh, got on that plane, flew down to Miami, same thing. I may have had about a four or five hour layover. I ran from one gate to the next. I sat down and I stayed put until they called my name. Finally, when I got on the plane that was headed to Costa Rica, I began to feel a little bit of ease because I thought, okay, I'm, I'm about to get to where I'm going 
and at least I've got the flying part out of the way. Well, we landed in Costa Rica. It was already dark. Um, walked down the jetway, walked out into the hallway. Very dark as well. And I guess I was kind of, this was pre-9-11, so I thought maybe things would be a little different. I was sort of expecting that there would be some folks there in the hallway, not a soul. I mean, it's just us uh, people that are coming off the plane, walking like a bunch of cattle down, you know, through and and headed. I don't know where we're going. I'm just kind of following the line. Uh, We walk down this dark hallway, and then all of a sudden we come to this staircase and probably two flights of stairs and look down into a room probably about this size where all the conveyor belts are that have the luggage and there's customs and I begin to see a bunch of people and so my eyes are just going back and forth right and left like I'm watching a ping pong game and looking for somebody that I know looking for somebody that I recognize again nothing I'm thinking you know did they forget did they did they get lost in traffic did they get stuck what happened why aren't they here so I walk down these stairs, I find my luggage, etc. I go through what I, and there's one way in, coming down the stairs on that side, and there's another staircase going up on that side that obviously goes outside. So I walk up the stairs like everybody else, and about the time I get up to the top flight of the stairs, over the, the front part of the crowd, I guess, I see this uh, little glint of red hair sticking out, and then all of a sudden I see this face, it's my friend Bart, Somebody that I recognize, and I think, oh, man, finally, I don't feel, I don't, I don't feel so bad. Uh, not quite as nervous anymore. I think, you know, a greeting and the way that you're received, uh, the way that we present ourselves to people says a whole lot about who we are and says a whole lot about how they're going to feel about us. I think one of the best things that we did here uh, was uh, last year, maybe a couple of years ago now, is we, we put window inserts in those two doors out there. And that seemed to just open things up and make this place so much more inviting. And I, I'm really thankful for our ushers and our greeters and all of those that stand at those doors and greet people as they come in. I think that just says a whole lot about what people are coming into. I am very thankful that when I walked up those steps uh, to that airport in Costa Rica, as well as if I go back to that door, there's not some naked crazy man yelling and coming up toward me like in this story right here. I think the disciples would have probably wanted to stay in the boat or get back in the boat and turn around and go back towards uh, Galilee where they came from. The text says that the disciples got into a boat with Jesus and they headed across the lake from Galilee. Now, some versions say opposite the lake of Galilee, and there's more to just opposite geographically. Galilee sat on the uh, northwest side of the sea. Gerasa, the town that they were going to, sat on the southeast side of the lake. Opposite, meaning that it was very likely opposite of Judaism, because Gerasa was probably one of the cities of the Decapolis, a set of 10 cities that were Greek cities. They were all individually uh, commanded. Uh, they weren't a part of a, of a nation per se. Um, so it was obviously a Gentile population. And of course, there's another clue in the text that gives us a, a good idea that we're in a Gentile territory. Can you guess what that is? The swine, the pigs. Thank you. Okay, so this is the only time that we know of that Jesus went to a Gentile territory uh, the first time and the only time. But anyway, they get to the thing. Now, if you look, you have to read Mark's version as well to kind of help clarify the picture of what's going on here. But before 
Well, the scripture says, Luke says that he stepped on the shore. Mark says that he got out of the boat. Mark leads you to think that his feet may have even been still been in the water. This man comes running towards him. Now, you also have to look at it. It's not as if this guy, the first thing that Jesus did, stepped off and this guy ran towards him. It actually, he had engaged this man in some kind of conversation, even told or, or said to the demon, come out of this man. But the demon resisted. But the demon did recognize who he was, recognized that, he was, that, that they were dealing with the spirit that was much greater, much more powerful than who they were. And so immediately they fall down, they beg for mercy, and they say, please, please have mercy on us. Don't send us back to hell, basically is what they're saying. What's interesting is um, Jesus doesn't do that. But one of the things that he does before, he says, what is your name? Now, he had already asked this demon to come out. The demon obviously resisted. Ancient, forcl- ancient folklore tells us that when you know the name of a demon, you have a greater chance of having power over that demon. Well, that stands to reason pretty much in anything. If you go to the doctor and you tell the doctor that you're sick, immediately the doctor's going to ask you, what are your symptoms? And as you start to describe him, he's going to make, he or she's going to make a diagnosis, and then they're going to prescribe some kind of medication to treat that. So Jesus is basically sizing up the situation. He's saying, what am I dealing with here? What is your name? He says to the demon. The demon says, my name is Legion, for there are many of us. Legion was a Roman term. Uh, a Roman army term, probably referring to a battalion. I think that would be the best possible comparison of roughly somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 men in this, in this legion. Now, I don't know that this guy had 4,000 or 6,000 demons. What I do know is that he had a lot more demons than any of us have probably ever dealt with. Maybe one, two, three, possibly four. This guy had a lot. They ask him... Once they realize what what they're in for, they say, please don't send us back to the abyss. Please don't send us back to hell. The interesting thing, and maybe a bizarre thing, is that Jesus says, okay, I won't do that. They say, how about those pigs over there? Send us into those pigs. Okay, you may go. What do the pigs do? They run off the cliff. The demons end up in the abyss. Anyway, we'll get more on that in just a minute. But then we see the outcome. The herdsmen are all up in arms. They run into town. They tell the owners. The owners come back out. They see what's going on. And probably the saddest part of the whole story is they miss the most beautiful part of it. And that is this demon-healed, demon-possessed man who is sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and yet they don't want to have anything to do with him. They want to keep him at a distance. Thank you, Kevin, for those thoughts. They're perfect. They want to keep him at a distance because they're afraid. There are three things, that, actually four that I'm going to talk about, but three things that kind of jump out, if you will. When I first looked at this text, I thought, man, what am I going to do with this? And then I started reading all these commentaries. I started reading some things that other people had said about it. And then I had all of a sudden I had 15 or 20 things. And I still said, what am I going to do with this? But I've boiled it down to three. Well, four. But, but some things that really, a couple, three things that, that, that jumped out and really uh, stood out to me was the answers that Jesus gives to the request that he's asked. The demons ask Jesus for mercy. And Jesus says, yes. 
I scratch my head on that one because you don't say yes to evil. The next one is the town people come and they ask Jesus to leave. And again, Jesus says, yes. Now that one I can sort of swallow because Jesus has never, or God for that matter, pushed himself on anyone. Always respected our, where we're at, not wanting to push in. But the third one, and probably the most legitimate of all, the, the guy that was healed says, Jesus, can I please go with you? And Jesus says, no. You stay here, you go back into town, and you tell everybody what I've done for you. So let's look at those real briefly. First, though, I want to look at why, why Garasa? Why go to a primarily Gentile place? Some would say, uh, there's various reasons. Some would say that maybe it was because he wanted to get some R&R. Some would say that he wanted to get away from Herod Antipas, who was probably breathing down his back. Uh, some, was saying that he, some would say that he knew that there was somebody across that needed his help, so therefore we've got to go over there. That sort of goes in line with what Tommy was talking about a couple of weeks ago when he talked about the widow who had lost her son. That she didn't ask for him to come up, but because he cared, he went over. He knew there was a need there. Some have also proposed that it was a foretelling of things to come. You know, all throughout, the, all throughout Scripture, you see periodically that Gentiles tend to be included. And I think that is a foretelling that the gospel is for everyone. Obviously, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. But that they're going across because he's going to let the disciples know, hey, these folks are going to be included as well. And also some say, well, that was the first missionary to the Gentiles, so therefore he needed to go do that so he could have somebody that was preaching the word on the other side of the sea. Bottom line, we don't know. But there is one more if you look at the context, and that's where I want to bring us back. If you, if you look further up in chapter 8, at the very beginning of chapter 8, Jesus is telling a parable. He's sitting down with his disciples, and of course there's a, a large, peop, a large a group of people that is gathered around, and he's talking to them about the farmer and the farmer sowing his seed and how the seed is going to fall on different kinds of soil. And he tells them about what those soils are. And, and then from there, they get into the boat and they go across the sea, and there's where the storm comes up. So you have this parable. He's telling uh, about how people are going to receive the word. Then we have four vignettes of Jesus taking charge over certain things. The first one he takes charge over the winds and the waves. The next one he takes charge over the demons. Then we have the healing of the woman that had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And then we have the, the, the healing of Jairus' daughter. The very next thing that happens in the text, if you look at it, it's, it begins chapter 9, is he commissions his 12 disciples. And what does he say to them? He says... I am giving you the power and authority to drive out all the demons and to, to drive out all demons and to cure diseases and to heal the sick. So I just wonder, maybe if part of what he's doing is he's, he's preparing them in a way for the mission that they were going to have. When they were in the boat, they were kind of fear, uh, seized with a little bit of fear and amazement. And they said their words were, who is this guy that even the winds and the waves obey him? And he's looking back at them and he's saying, you've seen me perform a miracle or two. You've seen me heal a couple of people. You've seen me raise someone from the dead. But you haven't seen anything yet. I've, yes, I can steal storms. Look how many demons I can cast out. I can heal people. But here's the deal. 
you're going to do the same thing. I'm going to give you the power to do the same thing. And when you do that, some people are going to respond and they're going to be very excited and they're going to jump in it and run with you. Some people are going to be hot and then all of a sudden they're going to turn cold. Some people are going to be very excited and then they're going to lose their passion. You just be faithful in what you need to do in the message that you need to give and don't worry about the outcome. That's a good possibility, a good reason why possibly he went over to the other side. But let's get to the three that I uh, sort of point out at the very beginning. First, he says yes to the evil spirits who want to go into the pigs. Now, as I said earlier, they recognize that there is a power greater than them. So they do the only thing that I would think comes natural. They bow down to the power who has greater authority over them. Why the pigs? You know, some people say, oh, those poor pigs. You know, they were just there. They didn't have, why did he send them into them? Some others say that, well, man is more valuable than animal. So therefore, he chose man over animal. Sure makes sense. Some would even argue that Jesus knew what was going to happen. And so he went ahead and let it happen. That's sure a possibility as well. But how about this? What do we do when we're in trouble? What do you do when you get caught doing something that you know you weren't supposed to do or you get caught in a situation where you realize, I messed up? Don't you try to find a way out so as not to have to face the full consequences of the situation? Um, Living in pigs would certainly be better than going to hell. Think about addicts, okay? And by the way, all of us in here are addicted to sin, so we're all addicts. Don't we look for the easy way out? Don't we, uh, we don't want to face our problems. We just want to do something or find someone else to lay our burden on in order that we may continue our, to, uh, that will enable us to continue our behavior. When we get caught, immediately we start looking for a way out. How about those pigs over there? Can we go in them? We look for, uh, we don't look at the big picture. We don't think ahead at our decisions or what our decisions may bring. We just look for the next best thing. I think, and also we tend to blame. And we tend to want to put the blame on other people. We'll see that in just a minute with with the townspeople. But I think the drowning of the pigs simply demonstrates the awesome power and terror of demonic influence and sin. It's a visual image, if you will, that Jesus is giving these people to say, if you don't get rid of sin in your life, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to wind up in the abyss. You're going to wind up in hell. Another thing, too, that kind of stands out is, is that all three of the gospel writers that tell this story make it very clear the status of this man in his dehumanized state, that he had no control whatsoever over himself. Now, have you ever scared an animal? Or have you ever been around a situation where an animal's been scared? What do they naturally do? They naturally run. They naturally run away from whatever it is they're scared of. They don't pay attention to where they're going. I've seen uh, out in in, um, uh, ranch-type settings or whatever, seen a cow run into a fence because she's not paying attention to what she's doing. She's just running away of what's scaring her. Maybe the pigs just got scared and they just started running and they ran off the cliff. I don't know. Either way, they ended up where uh, the, the demons ended up in hell where they belong. The second thing, Jesus says yes to the townspeople who ask him to leave. And this again kind of goes back to a little bit of what Kevin was saying in our 
uh, thoughts before communion. When Jesus comes to visit, it is no longer business as usual. When Jesus is present, people in conditions are challenged, they're upset, they're transformed. So the visit to the Gerasenes made quite an impact. Now, there's no arguing that Jesus's, and I'll put actions uh, in quotation marks, because the demons were the ones that ran the pig. The demons were the ones that ran the pigs into the sea. It wasn't Jesus that cast them out into the sea. But now he did allow the demons to go in. So if you want to argue it, yes, his actions did make definitely destroy a great portion of the local economy. And therefore, why not ask him to leave? You've taken everything away that we have. Please get out of here. But the interesting thing to me is the text says that they were afraid. Now, just a minute earlier before I said that also when the disciples were in the boat and Jesus had calmed the storm, the text says they were afraid and they were amazed. Do you realize that this is the first time that the gospel, well, Luke, I didn't go back and check the other. This is the first time that Luke talks about people being afraid following one of Jesus's miracles. Up until this time, every time that Jesus performed a miracle, every time that he healed someone, whatever he did, the people were amazed. Everybody praised God, gave glory to God. And yet this time they're afraid. Fear is evoked by the recognition of a power present which is greater than the power of sin or evil. The demons, as I said, recognized a spirit greater in them and begged for mercy. So the people appeared to as well, but what did they do? They chose to say, go away. Do you ever feel uncomfortable around somebody that you, that appears, I guess maybe I should say it that way, that appears to have it more together than you do? Do you ever get nervous when you're around somebody who knows more about a subject than you do? Um, I was thinking about, <laughs> you laugh. Um, I get nervous around Larissa sometimes, not, not because of what you think, maybe, I don't know what you're thinking. I get nervous around Larissa sometimes because those of you who know Larissa and know what kind of prayer warrior she is, know that she is very uh, dedicated and very full of the spirit when she prays for people. She will uh, uh, sit down and if, you, if, if she's ever prayed for you, you know this and you understand this. But she, she is in a, 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 a level, if you will, that I'm not, I'm not up at. And, and I don't know that I necessarily want to be there. And so at times I feel very uncomfortable around her because in a way she has it a little bit more together than me. Or possibly because I also see that that's an area that I need to grow in, that I need to make some changes in. That's one reason why sometimes we push away Jesus or those people who we don't feel very comfortable around. The people uh, that came out from the town, they knew where the locus of evil was. They had done what anybody would do with this man. They had pushed him out of the way. They had exiled him, if you will, to, this, to the tombs. They, they had put him aside. Isn't that, after all, what we do a lot of times with sin in our lives? We may not get totally rid of it, but we know how to kind of push it aside. We know how to push it down in its place. We can put God in a box when we kind of get to feeling uncomfortable. We would much rather, one way we get Jesus to leave is by training him or by turning him into someone who is kind and gentle, one who never gets upset, who is not a threat to anyone. We can be very good about putting God in a box. Probably the one thing that stands out in this particular uh, situation is that the awesome plight of humans 
who are seized with fear will prove to be more difficult for the reign of God than even the most horrendous possession by the forces of evil. With one command, Jesus made a legion of demons come out of a possessed man. But with one command, well, he didn't even command. He couldn't dominate the fear of the people who did not want him around. God is powerless to change people when they do not want to be changed. Lastly, Jesus says no to the man who wanted to join his ranks. Now, for all practical purposes, this man had been dehumanized. We know that he was naked. He was banished from the city. He was living in the cemetery and he was convulsive. But what does Jesus do? He restores him to his health. He restores him. He he brings him back to right status. The man is clothed. He's sitting there at the feet. He's in his right mind, the scripture says to us. Why wouldn't he want to stay with Jesus? I mean, Jesus may have been the very first person, maybe the only person that had ever not run away from him whenever he came running toward them. He may have been the only one that, that Jesus may have been the only one that ever touched him, that ever was willing to sit down and actually spend some time with him. Besides, he also may be thinking, I can't go back into town. Those people are never going to accept me. They're never going to let go of, they're never going to let me live down what I've been doing for the last several years of my life. But Jesus gives him one simple task, the one ministry that he and all of us are qualified for, and that is to return home and declare what God has done for you. What is the best thing that you and I can do when we've messed up? We know that God has forgiven us. We know that people have forgiven us. We know that we're trying to do right. We know that we've made things right. What is the best thing that we can do? Is it not to turn around and go right back to the place where the incident happened? Is it not to go back in and hold our head up high, not arrogantly, but and claim the forgiveness of God and, and be a witness to the people that are there? But what do we often do? How, how difficult is that? I don't know how many times, and I've said it too, you know, people have said to me, I can't go back over there. I can't go. They'll, they'll never accept me. They'll never believe me. They'll never let me live it down. What happens when we fail to do that? Do we not continue to remain prisoners to that one sin that we struggle with? Because we're choosing to hold on to it. We're choosing not to let it go. God's visitation is for salvation. He comes not to condemn, but to save, to heal, to restore, and to elevate us back to right standing. He is not scared or taken back by our demons or our sins, but he calmly meets us wherever we are. Miracles happen when we come to Jesus. Change can take place and will take place. Another thing, Luke is pretty clear in communicating what it is that we're supposed to do when that healing takes place. Turn around, go back, tell people what he's done for you. That's the best witness that can be is just simply sharing with, God, with, with others what God has done for us. No need to argue, no need to try to fig- see who has a better point or whatnot. Just turn around, go back, tell people what God has done for you. Bring it to a close. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what your demons are. I don't know what your sins are. 
I know what mine are. I know what I struggle with. I know that we have people in this congregation, and in a moment we're going to stand, and some of our leaders are going to go to the sides of the building, and they're going to be there available to pray. I know that they will receive you if you run to them or if you walk to them, whichever you prefer. They're going to receive you, and they're going to be willing to pray with you, and they're going to be willing to help you with those demons. The same thing, don't be afraid to approach them. Know that you will be received with open arms. God bless you. Let's stand and sing.